Good morning, church family. <laughs> it's so great to be with you this morning. I can't think of a better way to prepare for preaching than sitting around the Lord's table and singing that song. Uh, and I trust there's no better preparation for you this morning as we come to worship our God together. If you have your Bibles, uh, please turn with me to Romans chapter 14. Romans chapter 14. This morning we're starting a new series um, that will be running concurrently with the series on Revelation. Uh, in the series in Revelation, Clinton is helping us to see that Jesus is the Lamb who was slain who ultimately wins. And part of that goal is to help us see our world through spiritual eyes and to know that our Jesus, our Christ, our Savior is Lord. Well, in this series what we're, that we're starting today, we want to help us see how Jesus as Lord affects every aspect uh, of our lives, every response to every challenge. Uh, what our goal is with this series to help us see our world with, with gospel eyes so that we can honor the Lord Jesus Christ. And so what I want to do this morning is, is lay something of the foundation for this series by looking at this particular text in Romans 14. Uh, we won't be doing it verse-by-verse verse exposition. If you want that, go listen to uh, Clinton's message on that a few years ago. But uh, I want to lay something on the foundation, looking particularly at, uh, at, at a few verses here. Uh, let, let's read together uh, and, and ask the Lord to help us. Romans chapter 14, verse 1 to 12. This is God's Word, hear it. As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him but not to quarrel over opinions. One person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls. He will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. One person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day observes it in the honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in the honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God. While the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. For none of us lives to himself, and none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. So then, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. For to this end Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord, both of the dead and of the living." Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us will give account of himself to God. Only so far in the reading of God's word may he reform our lives to its truth. A story is told of a captain of a ship who looked down in the dark night and in the distance he saw faint lights. And immediately he sent his signalman, signal, signalman to send a message to those in front of him with this message, 
alter your course 10 degrees south. Now, a, a message was promptly returned, and it said, alter your course 10 degrees north. Now, the captain was angered. His command was ignored. So again, he sent a second message. Alter your course 10 degrees south. I am the captain. Well, the message was soon received again. Well, alter your course 10 degrees north. I'm Seaman Third Class Jones. Now, the captain became very furious and immediately sent a third message, knowing the fear that it would provoke. He said, alter your course 10 degrees south. I am the battleship. Then the reply came, alter your course 10 degrees north, I'm a lighthouse. <laughs> Dear friends, we live in a dark, foggy, challenging world where there are many voices calling out to us what to do, what to think, and how to live. And amidst all of the cacophony of voices around us that want to assail us with their opinions, May I suggest to you there is one voice that we do not ignore or dismiss. And, and that is the voice of the Lord Jesus Christ who is the light of the world. And not just the light of the world, He is the mighty rock that will smash all that do not heed His call. See, the Bible tells us that Jesus is not only the light of the world, He is the undeniable Lord of this world. Think of Jesus on earth as he, with his voice, cast out demons, quieted seas, healed the sick, raised the dead. How could he have done all of this? How could he have such power, such authority? Well, because the Bible tells us that he is none other than the Lord of creation. Colossians says that by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible, invisible, whether thrones or dominions, rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. Hebrews says that he upholds the universe with the power of his word. See, Jesus is, is no mere man. He is one who speaks all things into being. He is the Lord of life who upholds life. And we would do well to bow to this Jesus, dear friends. We would do well to stand in awe of Him. But what I, want, what I want you to really see and understand this morning is that Jesus is Lord not just because He's the Creator of all things. No, He is Lord because He is Savior. See, the Gospel is the good news that declares that the Jesus who lived and died and rose again for us in our salvation is not only Savior, but He is Lord. When Jesus rose from the dead in Matthew 28, 18, what did he say? All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. When Peter preached at Pentecost, Acts 2, 36, what did he announce? God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus you crucified. And when Peter or Paul recounted the blessings of salvation, how did he conclude in Ephesians 1.22? And he, the Father, has put all things under his feet. That is Christ's feet. 
See, the gospel is the good news that Jesus who died and rose again is Lord. And isn't that what we see in our passage? 14.9, For to this end Christ died and lived again, that He might be Lord both of the dead and of the living. And dear friends, if, if that is true, if all that I have said is true, if He is Lord, if He is Savior, then that changes everything and it must change everything. It has to affect all of how we see this world. See, the gospel isn't a Sunday thing. No, the gospel is an everyday thing. The gospel ought to affect how we respond to this world and all its voices that want to tell us what to think, what to feel, and how to behave. And see, that's the conviction of this series. Whether it's the challenges of religious pluralism or racism or gender confusion, whether it's the challenges of government authority and justice and even our entertainment, no matter what the particular challenge is, the gospel should be preeminent in our response. This, we believe, is important because we've seen how easily it is for the gospel to become disconnected from our lives, disconnected from how we think and respond to this world. And it creates imbalance and inconsistent Christians. I was even speaking to someone yesterday, speaking about how someone proclaims in the name of Christ, it doesn't affect the way they, they act in business or respond politically or, or those things. Haven't we seen this even in COVID? We've seen many Christians where the gospel and, his, and Christ's lordship has had little influence. And it has resulted in, in division and disharmony that ultimately dishonors Christ. And so what we want to do in this series is call us back to view this world through gospel eyes. And so this morning I want us to see something of the centrality of Christ as Lord. And so let's turn our attention to our passage because in this passage Paul points out to us uh, the centrality of Christ's Lordship, especially as we encounter the, the ethical challenges that, that so face us in this world. So the first thing I want you to see in this particular passage, and let's see if I can get this thing to work. There you go. Uh, the first thing I want you to see in this particular passage is the problem in the church. In verse 1 to 3, Paul is dealing with a particular issue in the church. There is this apparent disharmony and disunity between Christians. Uh, Paul speaks of some who are weak and others who are strong. See, the weak Christian thinks that by keeping certain dietary laws that he, he is more acceptable before God. He, he thinks by keeping certain days and festivals that this makes him pleasing to God. Now, the strong Christian, on the other hand, knows that, that it's not these dietary things. It's not his, his food that he eats that makes him acceptable. He, he knows it's not his religious rituals that ultimately pleases God. No, it is faith that pleases God. Why? Because faith, uh, because righteousness and acceptance before God comes by faith and, and not the works of the law. Isn't that Paul's entire argument in, in Romans? In Romans 3, 20-21, Paul says this, For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. 
That is, no one is acceptable before God because anything they do or have done. And why is that? Because our most righteous deeds, as I says, are like filthy rags. They're tainted with sin. And so Paul says, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God that comes through faith in Christ. See, the Christian is someone who, who is saved and justified, not because of anything they do or anything they've done or keep doing. No, they're saved by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, with all of that in mind, with Paul comparing these weak and, and strong believers, it's important to see that Paul doesn't take sides. He doesn't correct the weak believer. He doesn't commend the strong believer. Why is that? Because Paul here is primarily concerned with the fact that these Christians, both weak and strong, have allowed matters of conscience, disputable matters, to bring disunity and, and disharmony harmony to the body of Christ. Instead of welcoming one another with brotherly affection, instead of accepting one another as God has accepted them in Christ, these Christians not only despise one another, but they, they're judging one another. Again, why, why is Paul so concerned about this? Why is, is this disunity so key and so important for Paul? And the answer really comes down to the fact that this unity dishonors Christ. It puts into question our claim confession of Christ as Lord. To understand this, look at the end of Romans 13. Look what Paul says in verse 12 to 14. The night is far gone, the day is at hand. So then, let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. And, and what does he mean? What's that referring to? Look at what he says. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality, not in sensuality. And notice what he says next. Not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Do you see what Paul is saying? When Christians give in to quarreling and jealousy, they just say when they despise one another and judge one another, not only are they making provision for the flesh, gratifying its desires, but they're failing to put on Christ. They're failing to reflect Christ's likeness. They're failing to live under the Lordship of Christ. And beloved, I'm sure you would agree, that's a problem. For anyone to claim the name Christian and not to submit to the Lordship of Christ is a problem. And see, there's a greater problem behind the problem. Why is it that these Christians are failing to put on Christ? Paul gives us a clue in verse 4. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls. See, the problem behind the problem is that these Christians in Rome have, have taken the position that belongs to the Lord. They have exalted self as judge over others. And, and see, there is the problem behind our problem. Our sinful tendency to exalt self as Lord. 
Our, our sinful tendency to, to want center place, to be central in our lives and in the lives of others. James chapter 4 somewhat parallels this passage and he highlights his problem. James 4 says in verse 6, God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. He says, submit yourselves to the Lord. Humble yourselves before the Lord and He will exalt you. And why is He calling the, the proud to be humbled? Well, because James is writing to Christians who are also quarreling, who are despising one another, who are exalting themselves above others. He says in verse 11, do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks evil against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law. And he says in verse 12, there is only one lawgiver and judge who is able to save and to destroy, but who are you to judge your neighbor? Did you see the problem? There is a sinful tendency in us to, to want to be Lord, to exalt ourselves as Lord. And may I suggest to you, that is the greatest challenge before us. That's the greatest problem, perhaps even in our lives, our tendency to wanting to be Lord. It's the problem we often fail to see. And unless we see it, unless we see this tendency of ourselves to exalt ourselves, we'll respond to this world and respond to our challenges and respond to Christians and respond to Christ in ways that do not honor Him. It's until we see the sinful tendency of self, we will not honor Christ. We so often uh, fail to see this. We, we see the speck in another's eye and, and fail to see the log in our own eye. And so, dear Lord, oh, dear, dear people, we need to see that this is our problem, even as we face these challenges. And so are you recognizing that, that sinful tendency? Do we notice it? I would argue it's that tendency that often creates bitterness in relationships, that it makes uh, relationships difficult and, and the challenges makes mountains out of molehills because of our tendency to exalt self. And, and so that's the problem in the text I want you to see uh, that really points us and allows us to see Paul's priority. And that's the second thing I want you to see in this particular passage, uh, the priority for the Christian. What is that priority? Well, it's none other than the lordship of Christ. That's what we see in verse 5 to 9, where Paul reminds these Christians that we belong to the Lord. We are called to not live for self, but to the Lord. We are called to not exalt self, but to honor the Lord in all that we do. Now, as we consider this, this priority in uh, this priority of the Lordship of Christ, I, I think it's important to, to stop and, and ask ourselves, what does that mean? What does it mean to, and what does it look like for Christ to be actually Lord in our lives? Uh, let us realize that the Lordship of Christ isn't just something we confess with our lips. No, it's something, it's a commitment we make with our lives. Uh, see, the standards and the, the, very, the standards we live by and the virtues we follow, the, the ideals that we strive after, all of these things ought to be shaped by the Lordship of Christ. In fact, I want to suggest that it's in those three areas that the Lordship of Christ ought to take priority. Now, if you've ever read anything on Christian ethics or, or the study of biblical uh, morality, you would have seen that what C.S. Lewis calls the, the three parts of morality. 
or what others have called the, the three perspectives of ethics. And that is to say, ethicists and, and theologians often speak of at least three components that are necessary for something to be ethically good and right. Something is ethically good and right when it flows from right values, virtues in us as people, when it's according to the right standards in our practice, and when it's toward the right end in our purposes. And see, what I'm getting at is the Lordship of Christ ought to be seen there, in us as people, in our practice and in our purposes. Or say differently, uh, the priority of Christ's Lordship should be seen in our character, our conduct, and our goals. Now allow me to, to tease this out a little bit for us and, and bear with me here. Firstly, to, to live under the Lordship of Christ is to have our character shaped by Christ. Remember what Paul says in Romans 3, 13, 14. He calls us to, to put on the Lord Jesus Christ. And, and you know how that's possible? Because a true Christian is one who is in Christ. He's united to Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Romans 6.4 says, We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. See, see, to confess Christ as Lord means to have your character shaped by Him. It means we're animated and motivated by new desires, new principles, a, a new heart. The old man is dead. The new man is here in Christ. And our character is shaped by Him. That's what it means for Christ to be Lord in our character. Secondly, to, to live under the Lordship of Christ is to have our conduct shaped by Christ. Our conduct to be shaped by Christ. Notice what Paul says in verse 7 to 8. None of us lives to himself and none of us dies to himself. If we live, we live to the Lord. And if we die, we die to the Lord. So then, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. See, because we belong to the Lord and because we live for the Lord, we don't live according to our own precepts, our own rules, our own standards, or not even the standards and precepts of this world. Now we listen to and we obey Christ, His rules, His standards, His words. To be in Christ is to be called a follower of Christ and to, to be under Him. Remember this challenge that Jesus gives in Luke 6. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I tell you? Everyone who comes to me and hears my words and does them, I will show you what he's like. He's like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. See, the Christian is one who is under the Lordship of Christ. He's someone who comes to Christ and who listens to his words and obeys, whose life and conduct is shaped by Christ. So to live under the Lordship of Christ is to have our conduct shaped by Christ. But thirdly, it is also to have our goals shaped by Christ. And notice what the goal or motive should be for the Christian, verse 6. The one who observes the day, observes it in the honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in the honor of the Lord since he gives thanks to God. While the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord. 
and gives thanks to God. See, see, this is commendable of these Christians, and this should be true of every one of us. Our purposes, our goals, our motives should be to honor Christ in all that we do, all that we say. This comes across in Colossians 3.17. Paul exhorts us, And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, giving thanks to the God, God the Father through Him. And part of what that means is to do all things for the glory of Christ. He says later, you are serving the Lord Christ. See, the Christian is one who, who lives under the Lordship of Christ. He is in Christ. He is a follower of Christ. And he does all for Christ. Do you see what it means to actually be under the Lordship of Christ? It's so much more than coming here on a Sunday and saying, Jesus is Lord. Now, it is a life lived in and under and for Christ. And I suggest to you, all three of these aspects need to be present. Christ needs to be Lord in our character, our conduct, and our goals. Otherwise, we, we fall into serious problems. If you take any one of these out, you, you run into problems. Some people are, are guilty of selfishness. They, they are Christians in character. They, they follow Christ in their conduct. They, they live according to biblical standards. Yet they aren't motivated to live for Christ. Their goals are set upon self, not the Lord. These are where these Christians are at. They're Christians, yet they've been selfish. See, they're sincere Christians in character and conduct, yet they've lost sight of the fact that they're serving the Lord. And what is the result? The vision in the church. But there's even a worse problem there. There are others who are guilty of presumption. They claim the name of Christ. They, they claim to have Christian character. They claim to be motivated by Christian goals, yet they don't practice Christ. They don't follow Christ's commands. Their, their conduct isn't shaped by the Word and, and exalting Christ. See, they don't heed His Word. They walk in the ways of the world. They, and so they presume upon grace and they neglect His Lordship. Remember Paul's argument in Romans 6. Are we to continue in sin that grace should abound? By no means. How can we who die to sin live in it? And what is the result when we don't live according to the, the conduct of Christ? Well, the result is we fall into grievous sin that robs us of joy and fruitfulness for the kingdom of God. But I suggest there's even a bigger problem then than just selfishness and presumption. Others are guilty of hypocrisy. They practice the precepts of Christ. They boast in their religiosity. In reality, however, in their character and in their goals, they're not in Christ. They're not for Christ. These are those who walk and talk like Christians. They're religious, but they're not born again. There's no deep, meaningful relationship with Christ. They're just playing games. They're pretending. And they're guilty of hypocrisy. And the result will be shock and shame on the day of judgment where Jesus will say to them, Depart from me. I never knew you. See, this is how important the Lordship of Christ is. 
Is, is any of these three things true of us here this morning, beloved? Perhaps you're guilty of selfishness. Your, your Christianity is all about you. Or perhaps you're, you're presumptuous. You've abused God's graces, and, and so you walk in sin. Or, or perhaps you're a hypocrite. You're pretending. You're, you're putting on appearances for, for others to see. Or if you're in any one of these, these places, dear friends, there's one necessary response. That is to turn to Christ. Turn to Him with a whole heart and sincerely yield to Him. He is Lord. And to return to Him as Lord. So we need to see then that there is this problem in the church and this is the problem of self-exaltation, the sinful tendency to exalt self and the priority in the Christian should be the centrality of Christ in our character, our conduct and our goals. But the third thing I want you to see this morning and the last thing I want you to see is our personal accountability before God. In verse 10 to 12, Paul points us to the reality that each one of us will stand before God and we will give account to the Lord. He says, verse 12, so then each of us will give account to Him. I'm sure we know this, right? I'm sure we know that we'll have to give an account for every word, thought, and deed, every intention of the heart. I'm sure we will give account to whether or not we have lived as if Christ is Lord and whether or not we've yielded to Him. Matthew 7 Jesus says this, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, do we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many works in your name? And then I will declare to him, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Do you see, there will be many on the day of judgment who will confess Christ as Lord if they have failed to commit to his lordship. But I wonder, I think we know that, but I wonder, do we know that we also give account for the gospel? That we'll be judged whether or not we've lived in light of the gospel. In 2 Thessalonians 1.8, Paul speaks of Jesus coming a second time, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is even implied in our text in verse 9. For to this end Christ died and lived again. What is that speaking of? The gospel, Jesus' death and resurrection. And one of the purposes of the gospel is this, that he might be Lord of both the living and the dead. See, we'll be judged whether or not we've obeyed the gospel, whether or not our confession of the gospel has led us to serving Christ as Lord. See, the gospel isn't meant to produce a people who live for themselves, but a people who live for Christ. And so the question almost becomes to, for us this morning, is, is what have you done with the gospel? What have you done with Christ? Has it yielded a life of, of submission and, and surrender to Him? And, and beloved, surely this should be the, the natural result. Surely this should be the case, that Jesus would be Lord. If we truly grasp the, the beauty and the majesty and the wonder of the gospel, surely we would want Him as Lord. 
2 Corinthians 5.15 says, And He died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for Him who for their sake died and was raised again. Beloved, rejoice in the gospel. Jesus, the eternal Son, gave Himself for us in love. He took on our humanity. He took on our sin. He took on our punishment so that He would purchase our forgiveness, that He would reconcile us to the Father, that He would grant us, undeserving wretched people, the gift of eternal life. And if He's done all of this, If the eternal Son of glory became a son of dirt, the Son of man, to to lift sons of dirt into glory, surely we would yield ourselves to this King. Surely we would completely and wholly yield our lives, our thoughts, our actions for this Lord. Spurgeon said this, I have concentrated all my prayers into one, and that one prayer is this that I may die to self and live holy to Him. Didn't Paul say something similar in in Philippians? When many people think of Paul, they think of some twisted and harsh person, someone who's, who's difficult, someone who has twisted and perverted Christianity. And so many people, many people think that Paul just wanted to exalt himself Yet the the interesting thing is, uh, and many people don't want Paul, they rather want Jesus. And the interesting thing is that that that's exactly what Paul wants. Paul doesn't want a following for himself. Paul doesn't want to exalt himself. What Paul wants is is Christ. Listen to what he says in Philippians 3, 7-9. Whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus, my Lord. For His sake I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in Him. See, beloved, the, the gospel understood and loved and obeyed should lead to joyful submission to Christ as Lord. Is that something you can say this morning? That it is a joy for you to have Christ as Savior and your Lord. If it is, then to change everything about us in this world. And the conviction is in this series is that as we enter this world, as we face the challenges of this world, they are all an opportunity to not exalt self, to not proclaim our greatness, but an opportunity to show the world that Christ is. Is Lord. And see, unless we approach our challenges that way, unless we approach our challenges as those who are in Christ, under Christ, and for Christ, then not only will we fail to, to glorify Christ and honor Christ, but we will fail to experience the, the, the joy and, and the peace and the righteousness that Christ alone offers to those who submit to Him as Lord and Savior. And so may that be our goal. I've been reading a lot of uh, Francis Havergal's hymns. You might have known her as the author of Take My Life and Let It Be. Uh, She's known as a a, a consecration poet. And this hymn of hers, I trust, will become a prayer of ours. She says this, In full and glad surrender, I give myself to thee, thine utterly and only and evermore to be, 
O Son of God who lovest me, I will be thine alone, and all I have and am, Lord, shall henceforth be thy own. Reign over me, Lord Jesus, O make my heart thy throne. It shall be thine, dear Savior, it shall be thine alone. O come and reign, Lord Jesus, rule over everything, and keep me always loyal and true to thee, my King. May that be our prayer. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we have often prayed that prayer that your, that your name would be hallowed and that your kingdom would come on earth as it is in heaven. And we pray that that indeed would be true first and foremost in our hearts. That we would not be a people who live for self, for selfish ends, pleasures and delights, but that we would be a people who yield ourselves to you in your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Help us to see him as that beautiful Savior, as we celebrated this morning, who, who gave his body and blood for us. May we be a people who give ourselves as living sacrifices to him. We confess that we fail in this. We confess that our spirit is weak. And so we plead in the name of your Son, Father, and by the power of your Holy Spirit, that you'd help us to give ourselves fully and wholly to Christ as Lord. In his name we pray. Amen.